0: eavesdrop on experts a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights it's where expert types obsess confess and profess i'm chris hatsis let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world one lecture one experiment one interview at a time There's a beauty in foreign languages we often tend to forget. For so much of human history, conflict has resulted in the extermination of languages and dialects, preventing the transmission of culture to future generations. An expert in the importance of language in conflict resolution is Professor Joseph Lobianco, Chair in Language and Literacy Education, Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. Joseph, above all else, urges meaningful engagement and open dialogue as mechanisms for change in Australia and around the world. He chats to our reporter, Steve Grimwade.
1: Here you are, a man of letters, almost literally, uh, who works with languages, education and policy to help build peace. When you're first introduced to someone at a party, how do you explain what you do?
2: Well, actually, one of the things that people who work in languages have to avoid with taxi drivers and at parties is actually saying a lot about what they do. Because the first thing that a taxi driver asks you when you say that you are a linguist is how many languages you speak. Because, you know, people make the connection between multiple languages and language study. And, of course, well, most linguists do speak several languages, or probably many, um, that's not particularly what they do. We mostly study language or study about language. You don't necessarily have to know the insides of all the languages that you research. To, you don't have to be able to speak them fluently to be able to study them.
1: What do you have to know?
2: You have to know how languages work in general, the kind of universal characteristics of languages, what connects them, what separates them, and how they are present in society. My main area of interest is not grammar or linguistics strictly, but sociolinguistics, that is, multiple languages in a society and the relationship between the speakers of those languages, especially when there's conflict um, and conflict around diversity in multi-ethnic states.
1: I've always been aware of how language positions people and the opportunities that it brings or denies. I guess uh, you're a young man uh, with a, from a migrant family uh, when you grew up um, in rural Australia. Can you tell me about how that positioned you and the use of language both within your house and outside of it?
2: Well, Australia in the 1950s and 60s was a completely different place, unrecognisable to anyone who would visit the country today, not just simply because it's a much more populated and densely populated place than it was, but because its attitudes are so completely transformed from what they were then. Um, The Australia of the 50s and 60s was a much more closed-minded and closed society culturally, and public use of languages other than English was very heavily discouraged, and there was a lot of... I think um, prejudice and resentment against minority populations. I think it's a great credit to the country that it managed to absorb the large arrivals after the war, the Second World War, and the uh, dramatic changes that happened during the 1970s, when a lot of these, uh, you know, demographic changes were absorbed into citizenship. This is what Australia offered. But for people growing up at that time, that's not what they personally remember. They remember schools that were generally pretty hostile and closed and many teachers who were quite prejudiced, which is not typically the case today.
1: Maybe this is outside of your area, but does prejudice shift? Have we accepted uh, Greek and Italian and Chinese heritage because of the the, the length of time those cultures have been in Australia, and then we shift with every new wave of migrants?
2: I think there's some truth in that, but I don't think it's completely true in the sense that I think some level of acceptance uh, predisposes the society to a wider acceptance afterwards. So if you learn to accept some kinds of things, then the, the precedent of acceptance works more generally. It, it's, it isn't automatic, but it means that uh, people who want to change the society have got some experience to draw on and to argue with. Every development in society is hard fought. I mean, I think people who think that um, societies that are progressive and developed and um, more enlightened are that way because of something inherent in the population are really very naive. I think what really happens is people struggle for change and demand that it happens and make it happen. Um, that's, That's the only way that change happens almost anywhere.
1: Well, maybe we can talk about dominance and and privilege. I'm a white, middle-aged, middle-class, heterosexual man living in Australia. I'm one of the most privileged beasts on this planet. Um, How do those with privilege better understand that the dominant culture can suffocate all others.
2: I think that all change is premised on discourse. And um, it worries me when people want to, uh, because they're advancing a cause, and it might be even a cause that you agree with, uh, want to restrict uh, people who don't agree with that cause from expressing their views. I've worked in societies where uh, discourse is restricted often for good reasons because you want to protect people. Um, But actually we have to be very wary about the effects of doing this because um, the only mechanism that there is for changing anyone's views about things or for opening up uh, uh, inclusion of excluded groups is through debate, persuasion, argument and It should never be closed for that reason precisely. The mechanism for change is debate or dialogue or discourse. That is, I'm a linguist. Uh, I'm interested in language and society. The thing that interests me most these days is the proactive role of rhetoric, not understood in the way people normally understand rhetoric today as just propaganda or bad talk. Uh, Rhetoric is just basically any organised way to try to persuade people of things. Um, and our societies, which are democratic societies, have institutionalised rhetoric in parliaments, in policy-making procedures. And as societies get more complicated, we see this through climate change and through demands for social equality for uh, various excluded groups. I think the old ways of doing these things are inadequate, and we've got to explore new ways of public discussion. And I think that that's something that No one is giving sufficient attention to in Australia. We need to think about more deliberative processes of change, debate, inclusion. So when you talk about privileged and less privileged groups, this is one dimension of it. But then there are technical questions such as the massive gap between the uh, scientific knowledge of what's happening to the globe and public acceptance of this. That's another example. There are many like this. So all of these depend on the ability to have free exchange of ideas.
1: And potentially either a shared language or a respect of different languages or an acceptance of those. I mean, for instance, I mean, and we're going to get to your work more fully, but as much of your work takes place at an international level, but how important are the Indigenous language pro- projects, both here in Australia and elsewhere, to both Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities?
2: Well, it would be Actually, almost impossible to overestimate this. The the importance is enormous because we know, for example, that in many countries in the world, but also in Australia, indigenous communities uh, tend to be uh, marginalized and disadvantaged on almost every imaginable measure that you can find um, relatively alienated from the society, lacking in participation in um, whether the measures are in relation to health or educational achievement, seriously disadvantaged. When we look at the communities that are least like that or that are relatively successful, we find that there is an ability for internal conversations, cultural continuity, integrity of connection with the past, And these tend to be the societies where the traditional language is still used, where families talk to each other at home. Imagine the extreme situation. Well, it's not that extreme, actually, but it also happens with many immigrant families, uh, uh, in which children learn the dominant language much more quickly than their parents, um, develop more... Uh, what i 'm going to call discursive power, more power in discussion more more ability to you know talk about things that count outside the family around the family table or you know just generally in whatever place with their parents um, develop this superior power over their parents and the erosion that this produces in the ability of older people to Guide the young people to discipline them when that needs to happen, to uh, solve problems or help them solve problems, to even identify when they're having problems. So, um, no, no, no social group that's unable to communicate internally um, is uh, risk-free, and of course, uh, the what we're really talking about, adolescents and their parents uh, are never risk-free. I mean, adolescents always have some kind of um, problem as they're individuating and growing up and separating themselves from their, the adults that have raised them. But it's made very, very extreme when children, can't, young people can't talk to their parents very well or when they have more power than their parents. Um, and this is one thing that we see, that the well-being of indigenous communities, whether that measures are health or in psychological health or in physical health or education, performance of finding jobs and uh, leading productive lives and staying out of harm's way and, and so on, whatever measure we use, um, it's not a panacea, but uh, retention of traditional languages and ability to articulate needs. These are language-related questions. And when they're uh, stronger, we know that these communities tend to be healthier and, 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 and better connected to their traditions and better able to adapt in the new circumstances they find themselves in.
1: Let's turn to your work in, uh, around language policy and particularly in areas of strife. Um, you've noted that there are two kinds of language conflict relationships, fast acting and slow acting. Could you explain both to us?
2: yeah this comes this is a generalization if you like that comes from six or seven years of work i 've been doing now in Southeast Asia in conflict zones and um, it, it was um, a way of trying to communicate to the UN system that I was working for and, and other aid and development agencies a way to think about the, the link between language and conflict because they tend to look at conflict in relation to religious differences or socioeconomic inequality. And of course, all these things are, are relevant, and there are many uh, conflicts that are mostly about those things. But there's also a language factor in many conflicts, especially when you have multi-ethnic populations, indigenous, large indigenous communities, and societies that are trying to assimilate these people, uh, often in an aggressive way. And often these people are on traditional lands and the lands are being taken from them or they're being used for development. So there's a lot of things that come together. There's no conflict that's ever just about one thing. Um, So there's no monocausal conflicts. They're all multi-causal, but language is a variable or a factor in many of these. And in looking at it, and especially in the three countries that I worked in most, Myanmar, the south of Thailand and Malaysia, it was very clear that language was there in different ways as a factor. For example, children's failure in schooling, because they were not taught in their mother tongues, because uh, the school system represented basically an alien culture that the communities often reject, meant that children underperformed in school, they didn't learn uh, basic literacy, Uh, their persistence rate, that is their continuation in schooling, was much lower than the the average of the country. And, And for all these reasons, They tend to leave school early, have um, fewer skills and abilities that they can use in the marketplace. Um, Many of them become unemployed, and the usual kinds of things that flow, they're available for radicalization. They become themselves alienated and angry. And even if they don't do those things, they don't go the extreme path, the extremist path, they're at least... um, Um, not able to help their communities access skills and knowledge and opportunities beyond traditional life. So um, failure in schooling, which is a language-related thing, it's not just about language, but it has a very strong language factor, is what I call a slow-acting language effect on conflict. A slow-acting because it takes generations. Now, with immigrants... This is uh, slightly different but also similar. It's different in the sense that first generation of immigrants often defer the aspiration of mobility onto their children and their grandchildren. So um, it's a similar dynamic but slightly different in how it plays out. So that's slow acting. It means that through unequal literacy, inability to learn the dominant language of the society and therefore be closed out of opportunities, with these ways of um, um, underperforming, there's a slow acting effect of language which, which can produce conflict. The fast acting effect is when language is used as form of hate speech or exclusion or abuse of minority populations. And this happens quite a lot in situations of conflict. And leaders are often really not aware of the power of words. We find it It happens in Australia a lot, and I find it very frustrating. People say, well, those things are just words, or, you know, you shouldn't penalise words. Well, I don't think we should penalise words either, as I was saying before. I think we need open opportunities for conversation as much as possible. But we should also acknowledge that words are not just words. Words are powerful tools in the relationships with people. Most of our social relationships are in and through language, the things we say to each other, we write to each other about each other. And especially when there's hateful language, this is very provocative of, of conflict. So we know, so I call this a fast-acting effect. So these two, and there are others, I'm only just talking about these two right now. Um, these two, I think, were a useful way to organise the ideas because when I talked to, and I did a lot of training sessions for UNESCO in, in Bangkok for policy officers all across the Asian region, and when we talked about these things, they wanted a simple way to get into the problem because it sounds very technical otherwise and a lot of people could get a grasp of this and the examples that I used to explain it all which were real world examples of course and so that's uh, that's what that means
1: maybe as a as a precursor to finding out more about your work um could you give me a, a bit of background on this situation uh, in Thailand bordering on with Malaysia and w- what the problem is at the moment
2: uh, well, they're different in every case. Of course, the uh, situation in Thailand, where I've been working, has been in the south. There are three provinces in the southern part of the th- of Thailand that borders Malaysia. And in those provinces, uh, 80% of the population speak a uh, kind of Malay at home, uh, called Patani Malay, and they don't speak Thai, the national language of Thailand. Uh, or central Thai, the main variety of of Thai that's used, um, and it, that is the official language of the school. But the overwhelming um, focus of the curriculum of the school and the delivery of government services, whether it's fisheries or ag- agriculture or policing or whatever it happens to be, is done in and through Thai, written standard central Thai. So... For the great majority of the population, their communication with government and their interaction with people in the school is in a language that they don't know. Then there are problems compounding the relationships between the mainstream community and the local community because the mainstream community is overwhelmingly Buddhist and they are Muslim. Um, There's an urban, largely Christian Chinese population as well. So, um, and these three areas are easily the poorest in the country, or among the poorest, and certainly the education performance is by far the lowest, and has been really low-level conflict for many years, from 1909 when these provinces were ceded to the King of Siam by the British government at the time. Um, until 2004 when the low-lying conflict became a hot conflict through some military interventions by the Thai uh, forces and uh, very serious uh, conflict er erupted with many, many thousands of uh, people killed, including 200 teachers. And this is the area that involved uh, education and UNICEF, and they commissioned me to work there and uh, help develop some curriculum initiatives and language teaching initiatives and other things which uh, we have done uh, over this period of time. And in fact, um, uh, Mahidon University, uh, Royal University in Bangkok, was last year given a major award for one of the bilingual programs that they have been working on in one of these areas and it's only six schools but in those six schools the children who learn in their mother tongue really outperform all other children by a long way and learn Thai better so um, it's just proof of what we've been trying to do that um, a proper acknowledgement of the language of communities is actually um, not stoking secession it does the opposite it helps integrate populations better.
1: So that is the, the the purpose, that is the goal of your work in, in these areas?
2: Yeah, conflict, conflict mitigation, we call it, or conflict reduction. I mean, there's a research element in all of this as well, but most of it's very practical work aimed at trying to reduce conflict, to integrate communities better, to build social cohesion.
1: Working in conflict zones seems uh, like a long way from the job of an academic. Uh, what's it been like on the path from research to intervention?
2: Um, it's actually a very difficult transition because... Um, you know, the return home is always. There's always your own integration phase that you need to go through because the contrast between the the two settings is very extreme, um, and because you're a visitor to these environments and an outsider, there are problems there as well. Because outsiders actually have quite a few advantages in doing the kind of work I'm talking about because. Insiders are often not trusted by other insiders, or and um, they have a history of involvement there, so they're known by other people, and they're not necessarily always neutral. And they've got interests; they're going to hang around, and they're going to. So, an outsider does have some advantages, but you have the disadvantage of not having the intimate knowledge of the local setting. That no matter how much reading or research you do, and of course you prepare as much as humanly possible, you're never actually able to overcome um the The lack of historical knowledge that people locally have, and then when you come back and you 're involved in teaching and research well it 's often a great joy and a relief because it's uh, it 's safer and uh, and and um, the, the things that academics like to do we 're involved in our areas because we 're intimately interested in the subject area that we 're focused on
1: you know over twenty years or the decades you 've been in this area you, you cannot be uh, able to to be multilingual in all the languages in in all the countries you work in. So what's the particular skill that you bring? Is it a skill of being able to train those on the ground to
2: to build the bridges? Well, I do... My main method for working is what I call the facilitated dialogue. And uh, we... I mean, I've I've done research and consultancies in a lot of other areas, but the facilitated dialogue in these conflict areas is the main method. And that's something... That's a a process of... um, Uh, structured debate that we do over intensive, short periods of time, and then we repeat every couple of months. And we do that with uh, people who have radically different opinions from each other. Sometimes they're actual victims of other people's violence. Um, And so there are many elements to this, psychological uh, elements. There are elements of dealing with reconciliation, promoting reconciliation. There are elements to do with people just reading research together or producing research together. I don't mean academic research studies, I mean studies that people do locally about problems and how we can get to them, such as, and we always start off with something that's achievable. um, And the aim is to get people working constructively well on things that they can do together as a way of building trust and, 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 and productive relationships and then solving some local problems and then going back to the place and, and building a deeper sense of collaboration. And often these problems are school-based and education-specific and language-focused.
1: When does it work and when doesn't it? Where's that line? What do you need? What sort of level of faith and commitment to find a, a solution
2: Well, almost never is there enough funding to do these things with the regularity and uh, depth that's required. Um, We're always scrabbling for funds. Um, UN agencies don't have huge amounts of money, so the rates that they pay are lower than you might get from a commercial consultancy. Um, And And whenever we do this work, there's very active involvement of local people who I work with before doing these dialogues and after doing them. So they do continuing work while I'm not there. Um, And uh, all the preparation is done very deeply with them. And they do a lot of the language mediation work, of course, which I can't do. Um, We do these multilingualists, often done in six or seven languages. and they don't work – any number of things can make them not work. Um, sometimes there was a lot of violence and several of the participants were actually seriously embittered and so didn't participate at all well for reasons that were completely understandable. In Sometimes they're jeopardized or they're sabotaged by uh, public officials or, you know, military representatives. There are all sorts of ways in which things can be sabotaged um, and and that happens and sometimes you just have to go through it with everyone knowing that it's an exercise in sabotage because it's important not to give in to it and then we try and repeat it without the presence of those individuals on a later occasion. Uh, it's very uh, so, and sometimes they don't work for a couple of of the iterations. The first two dialogues we do, and then they break through on the third one, and that might be largely usually because there just isn't enough trust between participants. Sometimes there isn't enough. Um, you know, the research that we're dealing with is, you know, it might be Australian or Canadian or European or Japanese or Singaporean, and it's not really applicable, or it's not regarded by local people as applicable or we haven't had the time to adapt things enough and we only find out locally that, that the conditions for doing something aren't there. So I've done nearly 45 of these. Um, they often last five days, so they're very intensive. They all require a lot of lead-up um, and follow-up work, and we almost never have the funding to do that properly. So there's often frustration about, about those.
1: What's the proudest change you've been a part of?
2: I think the most satisfying thing has been working intensively with Indigenous people and public officials when those people haven't in the past talked to each other or wanted to talk to each other and just seeing the the progressive emergence of good relationships or at least sometimes even friendships. I had a very senior person in one place who told me she had never talked to any Indigenous people in her own country and actually postponed her retirement to continue working with us because she could see that um, something significant was happening. Of course, there are many times when nothing really positive happens or doesn't appear to happen, um, and when we go back later, we see that actually quite a few things are in place and going on. Anyone who looks at Myanmar in the news today and could see the extraordinary catastrophe going on there can see that the you know there are many, you know, the the, the depth and duration of the conflicts in that particular country is so great that, you know, what we're talking about is a drop in the ocean, really.
1: What would you recommend to up-and-coming researchers?
2: Well, I think the single most important thing that uh, I would suggest is to always imagine a wider audience for the work that we do, because, uh, of course, we do think about journals that we need to publish in and whether they're prestige journals or less prestige journals. Uh, we think about um, the reception of the academic work we do, and that means thinking about methodology and making things rigorous because they have to be comparable and defensible. All of that's really important. We're academics and and, and uh, these things are, are critically important. But we should devote space and time to audiences beyond uh, other academics and very importantly for practical application. I'm I'm very committed to that. It's been a large part of my career. But um, I think it should be the case for everybody because in the end, we are employees of the society. We're part of the same Commonwealth as everybody else. You know, we're, we're, we also send children to school and, um, you know, we're, we're, we're citizens as well as um, academics. We're not removed from, from living in the society. And I think that this... Uh, really, it has to be said, um, isn't always present in <laughs> in how people think about the research that they want to do and why they want to do it, the topics that they choose, how they go about doing it. And even if it is not present in that part of their work, it should at least be present in what they do with it after it's produced. Because um, that's a different phase of um, the generation of knowledge about, you know, how we talk about it, how we present it in the world, what we do with it. And that will often mean adapting it and changing it a lot. And that's fine, too.
1: You'll have to forgive me this question. Um, I've traveled reasonably widely, uh, but I'm hopelessly mostly monolingual. Um, however, I forgive myself that, and I forgive I forgive others like myself in Australia who don't have a second or third language. I've only successfully learned a language when I've actually been in bed and immersed and lived overseas. How much of a cop-out is this, that being uh, that our relative isolation from other countries in Australia gives us that excuse to be monolingual?
2: Oh, I'd say it's a big cop-out. Um, <laughs> um, I'm not talking about you specifically. Thanks a lot. That's no, but I think it's a big cop-out. I mean, it's not... Uh, uh, if it was once true, and it probably was relatively true once, uh, even though traditional Aboriginal Australia was one of the most multilingual places on earth, um, um, it's certainly not true now and never will be again in the future. I mean, we're connected instantly with all of the rest of the world. Through various devices, um, people travel regularly. Um, our economy is interconnected with uh, uh, with the Asian region. Our origins are from all parts of well, with the Asian region and beyond. Our origins are from everywhere. People travel and connect with other people, marry them, and whatever have relationships with them from all over the world. I mean, the the interaction that young people today and future generations are going to have is hardly ever going to be limited just with the domestic community that they're part of now. So, and language is an important part of this. Of course, English is a very powerful presence in the world and and very strongly so in Asia. But that's why I don't think that's an impediment to language study or a, a reason against it, because the main reason we should study languages is not economic need i think there is an economic need to do it but i think the main reason should be about the access it gives us to other people's ways of viewing the world and their experiences and language is the perfect instrument for doing that you enter into those relationships i mean you can study about these things in english i could i could study uh, as i have say the the history of uh of Burma, Myanmar, and I know that as an outsider. But if I knew Burmese really well, and I've, I've studied it uh, enough to understand some things and to communicate very basically, uh, I have to enter into the assumptions that people make about life, the things that they normalise. I mean, knowing a language is a different way of being inside another culture. It's being inside as a part insider. Language gives you that. So if you were continue with your Spanish, you would find, apart from the fact that it's an, a very good choice language, a very large numbers of countries, 25 that are uh, where Spanish an official language, you have to normalize their view of how the world works to use it. You know, in Spanish, you make a distinct distinction between inside corners and outside corners. In English, you don't make this distinction. This is a tiny and possibly trivial example, but... Languages are full of differences of this kind. They're differences of meaning. They're not just differences of communication.
1: Finally, um, when we hear another language, what's the first thing you'd like us to think about?
2: Well, um, if we're on public transport in Australia, we shouldn't think that that person is saying something negative about me, Uh, that anyone who's (laughs) an immigrant or uh, of immigrant origin has had the experience of speaking to their mother on the phone and having someone next to them think that and tell them off when we hear another language, we should be just interested in interested in it, try and imagine how it's connected to other languages we know, how it might work. I mean, uh, you know, the speaker might not want to, us to be intruding in their conversation, but languages are just interesting like that in that, um, you know, they're the most um, intimate connection between people that we have. The first thing that... Parents do when a baby is born is talk to it, and a baby can't talk back. So, from the instant a baby is born, we're communicating to the child that speaking language is what one of the most fundamental bonds of humans. So, from the minute we're born, um, we're socializing children into the into this this normality of communication. And I think when we hear the languages, we have to hear the just the common human experience that everyone has been through, exactly the same experience as us.
0: Beautiful. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thanks to Joseph Lobianco, Chair in Language and Literacy Education, Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Steve Grimwade eavesdrop on experts stories of inspiration and insights was made possible by the university of melbourne this episode was recorded on september 14 2017 you'll find a full transcript on the pursuit website audio engineering by gavin neighbor co-production by claudia hooper Visit our sister podcast up close, which features in-depth and long-form conversations with seasoned researchers across many fields. Check out the rest of the amazing content on the Pursuit website, and if you're listening to this on iTunes, drop us a little review. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another eavesdrop on Experts.